The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are going to continue this morning our study of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, I want to start out by... Yeshua had a lawyer come to him, a Pharisee, and ask him questions. And he asked him this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 36. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, the lawyer and his colleagues, they often debated which commandment was the greatest. They identified 613 laws from the Torah, 365 being negative, thou shalt not, 248 being positive, you shall. And so many hours were spent debating which were the heavy commandments and which were the light, which were the great, which were the small. In Yeshua's day, there were seven schools of Pharisees. And these seven schools, they all took the Bible literally But they ranged from the most progressive school, which was the school of Hillel, to the most conservative, the very traditional school of Shammai. There are five other schools who fell in between these two. But these rabbinic schools were always arguing about how to interpret the Torah, or what they called determining what is the proper yoke. A yoke was how you interpret Torah. And the debate always revolved around which is the greatest commandment. The Jews said that the commandments contradict each other by God's design, so they had to know which one was greater. For example, in Exodus 31, 14 and 15, you shall keep the Sabbath, because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off among his people. Six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. That's clear enough, right? You work, you die. All right? They're not to work on the Sabbath. Well, the Torah also taught in Deuteronomy 22.4, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen by the way and ignore them. You shall help to lift them up. So they're not to let animals suffer. If they see their neighbor's animal have a need, they're supposed to help their neighbor out. All right? They're supposed to raise it up. That's clear enough also. So here's the question. What were they to do if they saw the neighbor's animal falling down on the Sabbath? How could they keep one command without breaking the other? And this is why they're always asking which commandment is the greatest. The greater one they keep. Look at Yeshua's response to the lawyer. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So the Lord boils it down, love God, love your neighbor. Now, the lawyer came to test the yoke of Yeshua, how Yeshua Yeshua interpreted the Torah. And he agrees with this man's interpretation of the law of God, 
to love your, love your neighbor, love God, and then love your neighbor. Now, with the 613 individual statutes of the Torah, from which they had to choose, all the schools of the Pharisees agreed, the greatest commandment was love God. They all agreed on that. When asked what's the greatest commandment, Shammah school would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Hillel school would answer the same. So that was Yeshua's answer also. But when asked what the second commandment was, Shammai school would answer, keep the Sabbath. So they put the Sabbath law above loving your neighbor because they said the Sabbath is about God. So it was simply too bad if your neighbor was in trouble on the Sabbath. They didn't care. One must keep the Sabbath. When Hillel school was asked what was the second commandment would be, they said, love your neighbor. Yeshua's answer was also, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor came sep- or yeah, love your neighbor came seventh in order of Shammai school, even though biblically it's second. So, if all the commandments boil down to love God and love your neighbor, then that's basically what the Lord's saying here. He's taking this is the sum of the law and pro- on these two commandments. He says, depend the law and the prophets. This is the sum of the whole Torah. Love God, love your neighbor. So if every, all the commandments can be boiled down to that, why are there so many commands in the New Testament to tell us, do this and do that? Why do we have all these commands if we just all we need to know is love God and love your neighbor? Can't we just do that? Okay, listen. All of the New Testament commands tell us how to love God and love our neighbor. Because if it just said love God, you say, oh, I just have this warm feeling. That's not what love is about towards God, okay? So the New Testament breaks it down, makes it very specific. This is how you love God. And in our text in 1 Thessalonians today, Paul is telling them how to love each other. He's ending up this first book of Thessalonians and he winds up by just telling them, this is how you love. Love is not a feeling. It is an action. And this is what it looks like. If we didn't have specific commands... How would we know how to love God? How would we know how to love our fellow man? God's moral law gives us descriptions of love in action. And in verses 5, 12 through 13, we looked at this last week, he tells them how to treat the leaders in the local church. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Those were the church leaders. He says, and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Now, excuse me, we talked about this last week. When he tells them to esteem very highly, the English doesn't do any justice to the Greek here. It's to esteem them above everything else, reach out. You know, it's, it's just a stretching out of going all out to do this. It's important, he says. You esteem them very highly. And then in verse 14, he says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient to them all. All right, what we have here, people, is four categories of people. Okay? We have the idle, we have the faint-hearted, we have the weak, and then we have the all. And he's telling them how to love these three different categories of people. Okay? Commenting on this verse, G.K. Beale writes this, Many commentators see the remaining verses, 5.14-22, through 22, as final instructions unrelated to the preceding context and to one another. 
especially 5.14 through 18. More likely, however, these commands are all catalysts for the Thessalonians to achieve peace with one another. A hint in this direction is the concluding comment of this entire section that mentioned the God of peace as the one who will give them the ability to obey the preceding injunction. So what he is saying is that verses 14 through 22 are not just unrelated commands. He gets to the end of the book and just throws out a bunch of stay or do all these things. No. At the end of verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. And then he's listing these imperatives to tell them how to be at peace among themselves. Love each other, live like this, you'll have peace in your community. Now in our text for today, Paul's telling the Thessalonians to minister in a variety of ways, depending on the state of the person that needs the ministry. So if someone is unruly, the duty of the Christian is to warn them. Others need comfort. Others need to be upheld. One size doesn't fit all. Okay? So let's look at this verse 14. And we urge you, this is from the Greek parakaleo, it means to appeal, to exhort, to encourage. And this is a stronger word than we saw in verse 12 where he said this, because in 12 it meant we request. Now he's saying, I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you, brothers. This is the Greek word, Adelphos. Do you remember what I said last week about when Paul uses Adelphos, what it usually signals? He usually uses this to show a transition to a new subject. So here he's moving from how they are to treat elders to how they are to treat each other. But all the things mentioned here would apply to all believers, elders and everybody else. This verse deals with one another responsibilities. All believers have these to one another. Now, New Testament Christianity doesn't make a distinction between clergy and laity. The church seems to do that. The New Testament does not. Within the family of God, we're all equal. God has chosen leaders among equals to be elders in the church. But there's no clergy laity. There's no higher group within the local church. All right, so first of all, he starts out, admonish the idol. Admonish here is the Greek word nuthateo, which means to strongly encourage, to correct, to warn. And it's to warn someone to change from behavior that is wrong. It's related to the word for mind, so it involves imparting knowledge or understanding or instruction with a view towards correction. In other words, you're giving them information to turn them. A.T. Robertson says the verb nuthateo means to put sense into. (laughs) Boy, I wish we could do that. (laughs) To come alongside, he says, and put sense into their heads. Which makes sense, because if they're going the wrong direction, you want to give them some sense, go, go back, turn around, all right? Jay Adams has a book on biblical counseling called Competent to Counsel. That book is based on this Greek word, nuthateo. All believers are responsible to admonish those who are leading an undisciplined or disorderly life. That's every believer's responsibility. Paul repeats this command often. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, he says, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him. And warn here, nuthateo. So Paul tells the Romans that they are filled with knowledge and they're able to nuthateo one another in Romans 15, 14. He tells the Colossians in 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching 
and admonishing, and admonishing is nutaeo, one another. So here he says there to admonish the idol. Not a good translation. Okay? This is from the Greek word ataktos. And ataktos is a military term for disorderly conduct. That's why I say I don't think idol is the best translation they could have chose here. The word never means anything like that in the ancient world. I mean, you're not going to find anything in the Greek that gives you that idea. And it was used fairly abundantly. A tactos is the negation of the word tactos, which means ordered, prescribed. So a tactos typically meant not remaining in one's place, out of order, undisciplined, and could refer to one who breaks a commitment. Thus, a better translation, I think, would be disorderly or disruptive. It's not like they're just, they're not, they're sitting around doing nothing. That, that's kind of the sense, but it's causing disruption because of this, all right? And many think that Paul here is referring to those in the church who had quit their jobs in anticipation of the Lord's coming. And so they quit their jobs, and so how are they surviving? Well, they're sponging off the rest of the people in the church. So he, is, he alludes to this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, he says, And aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. <laughs> That's a good thing. And to work with your own hands, as we instructed you, so that you may work, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, then he addresses this subject in length in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 6-12. through 12, And here he describes the brothers as, For we hear that some... Among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And this is the adverbal form of a tack toss. They were leading a disorderly, disruptive life. They were not working, but they're acting like busy bodies. They're just being disruptive. So Paul is telling the believers that it's their job to strongly encourage, to correct, to warn somebody to change their behavior that is wrong according to Scripture. People, this is a responsibility of all believers. How often do we do this? This is something nobody likes to do, okay? I mean, we like to maybe talk about someone who's living in sin, you know, point out to somebody else that so-and-so is not doing right, but too often we don't like to go to the person and talk to them themselves about this, all right? Because they probably won't like it. Who would like it? You know, no one likes to have their faults pointed out. And I think one way to attempt to get out of this is to say, well, that's, that's really the elder's job. I mean, I know they're, they're not living right, but that's the elder's job. Yes, admonition is a job of the church leaders, but brethren here in verse 14 addresses the entire church. This is the responsibility not only of leaders, but of every believer. So how do we do this? Well, it's crucial, first of all, that you use the Bible and not your opinion. Okay? I mean, that's so important. We get things in our mind and we say, well, they're living in sin. That's not biblically true, but we think what they're doing is wrong, so it must be sin, because we don't do it. When I was on staff at a large Baptist church, I shared with this before, one of the major things at every staff meeting was, you got to go talk to so-and-so, their hair's touching their ears. Or you got to go talk to so-and-so, they have a beard. And I'd be like, I don't get that. 
where's that in Scripture that that's wrong? You know, but that was just, that was their picture of holiness. Hair not touching your ears and no beard. And then you were good to go. You were spiritual. Didn't matter what else, you know. It's just ridiculous, okay? So make sure if you're going to talk to somebody that you come from a biblical perspective. And when you do, you should kind of expect resistance. I mean, really, because most people just don't like it. And often when you try to confront somebody with their sin, they're going to halfway quote to you Matthew 7.1. Judge not. Well, that's a famous verse. And listen, this is one of the most misapplied verses in the Bible, okay? Yeshua is not forbidding making judgments about another person's spiritual condition. That's not what he's saying here. Because if you keep reading in verse 6, he tells us, do not give what is holy to the dogs and don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, you can't obey that verse unless you judge whether that person is a dog or a swine, right? So you have to be making some kind of judgment. What Yeshua is saying here is don't judge others for minor sins in their lives when you ignore the major sin in your own life. In other words, first take the log out of your eye and then go talk to your brother about the speck that's in his eye. Because it's so hypocritical. Because, you know, we don't ever confront somebody on stuff that we do. We confront them on stuff that we don't do. Because if we're not doing it, nobody should do it, right? Because we're the standard of holiness. And so we'll go to them. You shouldn't be doing this, brother. Get the beam out of your eye. You can judge. You're supposed to help your brother. But the idea is take care of your own life. Paul put it this way, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So he tells us, first of all, who should respond to the brother in sin. It's you who are spiritual. Now, who are the spiritual? What does he mean by that? He means the person who is walking in the Spirit. The person who is under the control of the Spirit. The person who is abiding in Christ. There to go to their brother. And this has to do with uh, a connection. You know, some of us are closer to others than other people. And, you know, a lot of times you're saying, well, the elders should do that. Well, the elders might not know about it. But you know, you're close to them and you know about it. That's your responsibility. Don't try to push it off onto somebody else. And like I said, it's never fun to admonish a a sinning brother, but it's necessary. Here's the bottom line, people. When you truly love somebody, you won't hesitate to warn them of a damaging behavior. I mean, why would you, you love someone and, not, you know, you see a little kid going over and the stove's hot and he's going to put his hand on it. Ah, that's okay. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, bother him. I'll let him do his own thing. If you love that kid, you're going to stop him, okay? Don't do that. That's damaging. And if we love each other and we see another brother and sister in a damaging position, we want to go to them. We want to talk to them. All right, then he moves on. So admonish the idol, the faint, and then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. The Greek word here for encourage is paramutheomai, which means comforting, consoling, being sympathetic, or feeling with the person in their trials. This verb is only used four times in the New Testament. Paul uses it twice in Thessalonians, and John uses it twice in chapter 11, 1 in 19 and 1 in 31. And when John uses it, he's referring to those who came to console Mary and Martha about the death of their brother. So they're comforting them. They're they're giving them encouragement because of their condition. Now, we are not to be comforting and consoling and sympathetic towards the unruly, 
Okay? We are to do it towards the faint-hearted. And faint-hearted here is the Greek word oligopsukos, which literally means little-souled. Little-souled. It refers to those who are faint-hearted, they're despondent, they're discouraged. These are those who, looking at the circumstances or problem in life, they tend to get really out of joint. They tend to want to throw in the towel. It's a person who's easily discouraged or overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, this word was used of those who were discouraged due to trials. In other words, they're going through some stuff, so they're really being discouraged. Brenton's English Septuagint says this, And having departed from Mount Or, by the way leading to the Red Sea, they compassed the land of Edom, and the people lost courage by the way. This is Oligopsukos. They became faint-hearted due to the trials they were facing. In Isaiah 35, 4 of the Septuagint, it says, Comfort one another, ye faint-hearted. Be strong, fear not. Behold, our God renders judgment. He will render it. He will come and save us. Again, Oli Gapsukas. So the Thessalonians, either the adversity they were suffering, and we know they were suffering in Thessalonica, or maybe it was due to the death of people in the community. That's why they had questions because their loved ones were dying. That would have been sufficient reasons for some of the members of the church to become discouraged. You know, I thought the Lord was coming back and these people are dying and now what happens to them when the Lord comes and, and we're going through all this persecution. So Paramutheomai points to the work of encouraging someone to continue on a course when faced with discouraging or perplexing problems. It works to promote endurance and staying power by helping others to get their eyes on the Lord and the principles and promises of the Word of God. Don't ever be afraid to go to encourage someone with Scripture thinking they already know that. It doesn't matter that they know it. It's really nice when they hear it from somebody else. Because we all tend to forget things, you know. Especially when in the midst of difficult situations. So the, the faint-hearted are to be encouraged. And then he says, help the weak. Help here is antekomai. And this is, this is sad because help here is such a simplistic word for the concept that this Greek word really brings out. Um, this verb, antekomai, means to cling to, to hold fast to something or someone, to be devoted to, and then has the idea of to be interested in, to pay attention to. Here it's a sense of giving support and holding them up. Weak here is the verb asthenes. And that's from stenao, which means to strengthen with the negative prefix a, not it means without strength. So you're going to help the people that don't have strength. It's used of both physical and spiritual weakness, and the context has to determine its meaning. So Paul doesn't define the exact weakness here, but the context is obviously talking about a spiritually weak person. They're spiritually weak, and so they need encouragement, they need support. Notice what Paul said about the weak in Romans. This 14 and 15 is an interesting chapter when he's dealing with the weak, but this has got to pay particular attention here to what he's saying. As for the one who is weak in faith, okay, so that's their weakness. They're weak in their faith. Welcome him. 
That's the response we to give to those people. But watch, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So who's the weak here? The vegetarian. Because they're not eating meat, that's why they're weak. No, this is... (laughs) It's one of the reasons, but... (laughs) But uh, it's talking about being weak in faith here. But what he's saying is, welcome them, but don't welcome them so you can argue about the benefits of meat, okay? Just welcome them because you're your brother. Then he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. In other words, people, man, accept one another. Don't get into these little arguments about putting others down because they don't do what you do. Now, the Greek word for weak here is osthenao. It's the same word in verbal form as it was in our text. The weak are weak in faith. The problem is not their opinions, it's not about their liberties, it's about their faith. Their faith is just not strong yet, they're new. Paul tells the strong not to pass judgment on the opinions of the weak, accept them. And sometimes we want to accept somebody so we can straighten them out. That's not what he's, no, just accept them, he's saying. It gets a lot stronger when you get to chapter 15. He says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. (laughs) Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fall on me. So the strong, he's saying, have an obligation because of the fact they are strong, to bear the failings of the weak. Now, obligation here is the Greek word aphelo, which is a very strong word. It means to be under an obligation to be a debtor. Paul is saying the strong, to the strong, they have a debt, and that debt is to bear, which is the Greek word bestadzo. This doesn't uh, have the idea of putting up with or tolerating. That's not what he said. Hey, put up with these people. No. It's to get under and carry a load. It's used of carrying something, shouldering a burden. In Galatians chapter 6, it talks about bearing one another's burden, and it means to get underneath and put it on your shoulders. That's bear, not put up with. Bear, help them out. We have an obligation, he says, to the weak, to help them out. So Paul teaches here that Christians with such weakness are to be special objects of the loving care for the whole church. They're weak. They need our help. Now, weak in our text in Thessalonians could refer to those suffering under temptations to lapse back into immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2-8 through talks about that. So we're not to admonish the weak. We're not to encourage the weak or to give them support to hold them up. Each person is dealt with in a different way. And then he closes the verse out by saying, hey, be patient with all of them. What? All of them? This is a present active imperative. It's a command to continually be patient. The Greek word here for patience is makroth umeo, and it literally means long-tempered. It's derived from makros, which means long, and thumeo, which means anger or passion. 
It's the opposite of being short-tempered, having a short fuse. When he described biblical love, Paul began with this. He said, love is patient. I'm going to explain to you what this love is I'm talking about. Here's what it is. Number one, it's patient. So the first thing he wants us to understand about love is it's patient. Again, this is makrothumeo. In almost every New Testament occurrence, it conveys the idea of having an infinite capacity to be injured without seeking payback, even when you're in the position to give payback. So this would be like Joseph. Okay, He's in a position to pay back his brothers. Never thinks about it. He's patient. He's patient. And it, it deals with patience with people, not circumstances. It's having a long fuse. The loving person is able to be inconvenienced, taken advantage of by a person, and yet not be upset or angry. They're patient. When one deals with the disorderly, the discouraged, the weak, patience or long-suffering is a needed quality. Because if we're impatient, we're not loving. And we're not helping these people. If we get frustrated, we get angry. We're not loving. Paul exhorts the Colossians, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. As God's children, he says, you've got to be patient, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, I want to just focus on that. I want you to hold that in your brain. We're going to get to that a little bit later. But here's how you're to forgive each other. Here's the standard. As the Lord forgave you. Okay? So mark that down. That's the standard of forgiveness. What we have to understand, people, is that patience is a characteristic of Yahweh. Right? We see this in Exodus 34.6. Again, this is a Septuagint. And the Lord passed by before His face and proclaimed, The Lord God, pitiful and merciful, long-suffering and very compassionate and true. So our God is long-suffering. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? Believers, we are to emulate the character of our Father. That's what these commands are for. That's what this is all about. We are to be like God so the world sees God. We're to be imitators. Ephesians 5.1 Be ye therefore imitators of God. We are image bearers. We bear the image of God to the world. You know, when I think of image bearer, I always think of idols. Alright, the pagans would get an idol. They weren't worshipping that idol, that stone, that pole. They were worshipping the God it represents. See, that idol represented a God. And so they went through this elaborate ceremony where they would open the mouth and the God would come in. And that way they localized the God. They could talk to him. They could, he could be there with them. It was their version of, this is our God. This is, we can see him now. We can worship him. And the Bible tells us we're not allowed to have idols. Right? Why? Do you know that God has idols of himself? Who are they? It's us. It's us. Don't make an idol because you are God's image. We don't need some stone or rock. You're the living representation of the living God. And the things you do, the things you say, the way you act should show the world that's God. That's their God. Boy, too often we paint a really 
bad picture. All right, let's move on to the next verse. I wish I could find some textual criticism that says this verse is not in the text. Can't do it. Stuck, okay? See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, because of the hostilities the Christians in Thessalonica faced, there was sufficient motivation for believers to seek ways to revenge themselves on their persecutors. And I think, you know, our natural tendency is to retaliate for a wrong suffered. And that has to be strongly guarded against, no matter what the injury is. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. This is another present active imperative. Believers are to respond differently than unbelievers. Believers should act in love, not anger. Now, hopefully some of you know your Bible might be thinking, well, what about what the Tanakh says in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I like that better. Okay? So which, do we just pick what we like? We'll be like the Pharisees and say, well, this is a greater commandment. <laughs> we should give eye, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We should give them what they know. Listen, that text is talking about public law. That mosaic prescription was to do with the nation. A nation is to have a system of justice that retaliates against evil. So that where there's murder, there's an execution of the murder. Where there's a thief, the thief should deal with retribution upon himself. He should have to pay back or pay for that issue. There's an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And society is ruled and governed by men. It's a law. But that's not for private revenge. That's the point. What God designed for the society is not vigilante law. The government is supposed to take care of that stuff. <laughs> Our government has, justice has left the building, okay? But in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua spoke against this, uh, their misapplication. He says, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Yeah, they heard it. That's in the law, all right? But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now the Lord goes on to say in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That's not something, love your enemies? Uh, you don't usually, you don't have a good feeling about them. You don't want to do anything nice to your enemies. You want to retaliate, but he says the opposite, love them. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, don't repay evil for evil. Which he obviously got from the teaching of the Lord. Now, maybe we should cling to audience relevance here and say this is for first century saints. This is how they're supposed to act, right? I mean, us today, we, you know, we're, we're not under this. That might make us feel better, but it'd be wrong, okay? This is a command for the church, for all believers, for all saints, for all times. Peter repeated this command in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He says, finally, all of you 
Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Believers, this is how God calls His people, His image bearers, to live. Romans 12.19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think revenge is one of the most natural of human responses to injury or attack. At least it is for me. I don't know about you, but that's one is to be my first response. We always feel that if we treat others the way they have treated us, we're only giving them justice. They deserve this. It's justice, right? And I, well, I know I love movies like Charles Bronson's Death Wish or Shooter, where all the bad guys get killed. I love those kind of movies, all right? And we kind of feel that we have a right to retaliate because, I mean, they violated our rights, so we have a right to do this. John Kennedy said, don't get mad, get even. And that's the philosophy of the world. And Seneca commented that vengeance was legitimate. And in the Roman world, just like in the Greek world, avenging oneself for a wrong was actually necessary. Because it would, you would be humiliated by someone attacking you. If you didn't go back and attack them back, that was wrong. And you would literally lose your place in society because, hey, you just let someone walk all over you. The loss of social honor called for vengeance to be extracted in order to reestablish your place in the community. This represents the wisdom of the world. And if we're truthful, that's, I think, the way most people, even Christians, want to operate. When anyone threatens our right, whatever they take what belongs to us, we're inclined to retaliate. Revenge. Defend your own borders. I think it's the first impulse of the unregenerate, and it's also the first impulse of us too often. We're not to fight with the same spirit as they do because we're to have a Christ-like response. I think one of the most convicting scriptures to our self-centered, materialistic, vengeful attitude is this text in Hebrews 10. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I mean, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now listen, it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I'd like to tell you this is a textual error. Again, it's not. Okay? This is very convicting. This is the concrete action of the tribulation mentioned in verse 33. Their property was being confiscated. They were being persecuted. Now the word here, plundering, is the Greek harpage, which most likely points to mob violence, the unjust seizure of property. And notice that it doesn't say anything about retaliation or resistance. If I was writing this text, 
I would say, and they took their AR-15s, and they took their Mossberg 590s, and they shed blood defending their property. They went down in a hail of bullets, okay? But it says they joyfully accepted it. Now, I know from experience that nothing in the world causes more distress, depression, grief, anxiety, than people coming and taking things that belong to you. Especially stuff that you individually have worked diligently and honestly for and need for you and your family. But our text says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. How could they have this attitude? I mean, what did they know that we don't? It's a one-word answer. Yahweh. (laughs) They knew Yahweh in such an intimate way that it controlled how they lived. Because people, joy is a byproduct of the Spirit-controlled life. If you're under the control of the Spirit, joy is one of the fruits of that. Let me ask you a question. Is anyone brought closer to the kingdom of God by you asserting your rights? Is anyone brought closer to the kingdom by you retaliating? I think the answer is obvious. We don't win people to Yeshua by beating them up. <laughs> okay? We're not one this way. Neither do we become more Christ-like by asserting our rights, because He never did that. You see, God has a purpose. And His purpose is to show His grace through His people. His purpose is to touch people's hearts by His mercy. His purpose is to develop our character so that we are conformed to the nature and image of Christ. So when people look at us, they see that's how God responds to things. The purpose is to reveal His kingdom on earth through His people. The choice is really yours. The choice is either to take matters in your own hands or to be an agent of the kingdom of God. You can assert your rights or you can reach out to others. You can retaliate or you can show compassion. Now, if the first part of that verse wasn't bad enough, it just gets worse. He says, always seek to do good to to one another and to everyone. This again is a present active imperative is rendered literally continue to pursue good. The term good here is agathos which usually emphasizes a moral quality. The Greek word translation translation here, seek, is dioko. Dioko means to hasten, to run, chase after, press on, to persecute. It means to go after something with a strong intent and effort. We could paraphrase this. Rather than seek vengeance, go after that person's highest good with a vengeance. What? Not retaliate, like I said, is bad enough. You can't retaliate, but not only can you not retaliate, you're supposed to go after their highest good. Paul put it this way in Romans. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, some people think this is a proof text for a roundabout revenge. You know, oh, we're going to get them, we're going to burn their head. (laughs) They see burning coals as a figure of God's judgment that comes upon the enemy if he persists in antagonism, but that doesn't sound very nice unless having burning coals put on your head is a good thing. Could it be a good thing? Well, here's what we have to understand. This is a Hebrew idiom. 
What's one thing you know about idioms? Somebody has to tell you what they mean because you can't figure it out by yourself. Okay? You just can't look at an idiom and say, oh, that means this. You know, we don't... He bought the farm. Okay? That's an idiom, right? What's it mean? He died. Okay? He died. But how do you put those together? Huh? You don't unless someone teaches you this is what this idiom means. Well, that's the whole idea here with this Hebrew idiom. It's got a historical origin, but you have to try to understand what that is. Because until you do, you're not going to get what it's meaning at all. Paul's quoting here from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Okay, so you see what's happening here? You're helping your enemy out, right? And then watch what he says. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and Yahweh will reward you. Well, that's going to hurt my enemy by feeding him and giving him drink? No, that's not what it's talking about. Okay? It, <laughs> that saying, this saying here in Proverbs, is in the middle of several Proverbs that use physical images to describe emotional reactions. Right before in this passage, it says this Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart, okay, someone is mourning, someone is grieving, and you're singing songs, all right? Here's what it's like. It's like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Not very pleasant. And like vinegar on soda. So the physical picture of discomfort here illustrates that trying to make a person in mourning happy just distresses them even more. Likewise, the passage about coals is about the emotional discomfort that an enemy will feel when you take care of their needs. They're your enemy, but you're being so nice to them, and they're like, what is this about? According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, it says this, the word coal is often used in a metaphorical sense. 2 Samuel 14.7 speaks of the quenching of the coal of a man, meaning the complete annihilation of his issue. While in Proverbs 25.22, kindness is bestowed upon an enemy and is called heaping coals of fire on his head. Since it tends to weaken his deadened conscience and help him realize his wrong. I mean, when you're nice to somebody who hates you, it does something to them, right? He says, Sirach 8.10 compares the smoldering and easily roused passion of the godless man to the coal that is easily lighted and breaks forth into a flame. The ancients were a nomadic people who depended on fire for their daily work. When one would retire for the night, they would stoke the fire with fresh wood so that there would be coals remaining in the morning. It may be necessary to get up in the middle of the particular cold night and repeat the process so that there, could, there are still coals remaining in the morning. However, if one is lazy and doesn't prepare the fire the night before, the coals are all extinguished in the morning, and that individual is forced to go to a neighbor and beg for some hot coals. Envision your enemy coming to you in the morning, begging for a few coals. He brought a small bowl with him with which to hold the coals. You have few coals to share. Your fire will not be fully built until the late morning. However, recognizing your enemy's need, you offer him so many coals that he has a full, large bowl full. The ancients carried a bowl on top of their head. So heaping coals on someone's head is to give them a gift that they do not deserve, and that's the idea. They're like, why are you being so nice to me? You know, that, it just 
bothers them, you know, that you're supposed to be their enemy and they're being nice to you. And this is consistent with grace. It's act that is deserving of a reward. And it says the Lord will reward you. Now that's in Proverbs passage, not in the Romans passage. There is no measure of hypocrisy and no desire for vengeance in this act of giving your neighbor hot coals. So by doing so, they're leaving the judgment and vengeance entirely up to Yahweh, doing exactly what the Scripture describes and exactly what the Holy Spirit would inspire. So Paul is saying here, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Do the exact opposite. Seek their highest good. This relates to Christian actions toward believers and non-believers. Christians must diligently endeavor to produce what is intrinsically beneficial to others, whether other Christians, he said, do to one another, and then he says, and to everyone. And you know, the most painful wrongs often do not come from the world, but they come from within the church. They're the people who seem to hurt you the most because they're the ones you love the most. Now let me say this, and I want you to get this because this is really important here. The seriousness of the abuse suffered has no bearing on the issue. You understand what I'm saying? We're not to revenge. We're not to seek evil for evil. We're to pay back good. But you say, but you don't know what they did to me. That doesn't matter. That's not an issue. The issue is, as a Christian, you're to forgive. As Christ forgave us. That's the standard. We put Christ on the cross and He forgave. And I know that some people are wronged and they just feel like, I've been wronged so bad that I can't forgive this. doesn't matter. The abuse suffered has no bearing on the issue of you forgiving, of you not retaliating. Now, some Thessalonians had been victims of unjust, harsh treatment. Some of them had been put to death. Regardless of this, a positive Christian response is the only suitable recourse. The welfare of the offender must be the prime objective. (laughs) People, the Bible teaches that although God's standards are high, and thus they seem impossible, God provides supernatural resources to meet them. That's what you have to understand, people. Listen, responding as this verse calls us to is not natural in any way, shape, or form. It's supernatural. So if you respond this way, the world, everybody knows that's not a natural response. Something's wrong with you. You must be under the control of the Spirit. You're demonstrating God. Okay? Look what Paul said in Philippians 4.13. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does he mean when he says that? He means that because he's in communion with Christ, the power of Christ is available to him for every need. God doesn't give us commandments that we cannot carry out. We can, but we can only do it as we're walking in fellowship with him. Paul doesn't say, I can do all things because he's a Christian. He can do all things because he's living in a dependent relationship with Christ. He's abiding in Christ. He's controlled by the Spirit. That's why he can do all things. That's why he can respond the way 1 Thessalonians 5.15 is telling him to respond because he's under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 15 takes supernatural power to carry out. So if you're trying to do it in the flesh, it will never happen. You can grit your teeth. You can struggle and try all you want. You'll never seek the person who did you evil. You'll never seek their best interest unless you're truly controlled by the Spirit of God. And listen, people, when believers live like this, it glorifies God because we're His children and this is how we're supposed to live. I didn't really want to preach this this morning because it definitely goes against my natural tendency. <laughs> but it, it's, it's just convicting because, listen, as Christians, we're called to be different. But are we? Take your average Christian and take your average lost person and what is the difference? Most Christians don't even read their Bible. So they don't know, have a clue what they're supposed to do. Some of them go to church on Sunday. That's the extent of their Christianity. No, that's not what it's about. It's about living a life in holiness and purity, living, imitating God so the world sees God in the life of Christians. People were image bearers. That's what we're here for. Not here to please ourselves. We're not here just to you know, build a home and have kids and you know, live life. We're here to make an impact on the culture for God. If we're not doing that, we're not fulfilling our calling. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Don't like texts like this, Lord. It just shows us how far we are from where we should be. Lord, I pray that our desire would be to walk in such an intimate relationship with you that our response is a biblical one. That we would realize that you are sovereignly in control of all events and we would trust you in them. We can know that people meant evil for, against us, but you meant it for good. Lord, may we learn to rest in your word, trusting you for every area of life. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Questions, comments? <laughs> Doug says, God bless the BBC from... Your seed and oak will grow, and from the oak a forest will be made, and by his power that forest will become Eden reclaimed. Praise his name. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate that. It's, you know, send. this is not a sermon I was excited about doing. Blessing, Pastor Dave and beloved church. You were talking about the ten virgins a week or so ago, and you were saying that you believe all ten were saved. Just wondering, why then did Christ say, to the other five, I do not know you, and the door was shut. Just curious of this understanding. Thanks. Love and praying for you, the congregation, Gary and Chris from Pennsylvania. I'm going to have to deal with that text because I, I get, keep getting questions on that. I guess I should have done it at the time, but I was just using it as an illustration. So I'll get into that and, and deal with that so I can clear that up. All right, give me, give me a week or two and we'll deal with that. Oh, Shelly, trying to cause trouble here. She says, hello, how are you applying today's lesson with what's going on in our country? I want to fight for our rights. Okay, again, here's the thing. We have to make a distinction between personal and 
our country are governmental. I mean, I think that 98% of Washington should be taken out and executed. Okay, they're criminals, they're unjust, but it's not our response. I can't go up there personally and do it myself. Okay, that would be wrong. All right, that would be vengeance. But this country, we do that through voting. Of course, we're trying to vote and they're stealing the election. So, you know, I think the only solution we have is just pray. Pray that President Trump and the patriots really do have this thing under control and bring it back around. It's been a long, long time in this country since things have been right, okay? I mean, I think elections have been being stolen for a long, long time. And that's why we just put their one puppet in. They changed from Democrat to you know Republican back and forth. They're all corrupt. doesn't matter. But I think there's some good people now, and I think some good things are happening. And, uh, you know, I... As far as the election that's coming up, if it happens, I just encourage you, get out and vote. We have to overwhelm the system because they're going to cheat. They're going to try to cheat, but they can't do it when we're all out there and the numbers are so high. That's what happened in Pennsylvania. I mean, that's what happened here in Virginia, okay? Because their last election, I mean, how do you think our, our governor won? People just overwhelmed the system. They just couldn't cheat. It was too, the numbers were too high. So we got to do what we can do. And again, we have to make a distinction between personal and what our country is, okay? But we can't take up arms unless it comes to a revolution to overthrow the government, you know? And there's a case can be made for that, I do believe, okay? (laughs) As Yahweh's image bears... We are never closer to bearing His image than when we truly forgive. Yeah, that's from Norm. And I agree, Norm. I think that's one of, the, one of the hardest issues we have because, you know, we each have such a strong sense of justice that they did this to me. I can never forgive that. You better look back at the comparison that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven by God. Okay? As Christ forgave us. Oh, Rick, this is a long one. Rick Welch, I recently received a message from one of our listeners that had converted to preterism. Unfortunately, she is being admonished by her husband and some others of her church for holding this view as it seemed to be unruly and heretical. She asked us if she should bring, bring to refute her husband's views by showing him the scriptures in a loving but corrective manner or if she should remain patient and hope that he will eventually come to know the truth through her love. This has created a serious problem, and she is concerned for her marriage and her children. She is trying to remain compassionate and patient. At times, she wished she'd never heard this view because of the trouble that it has caused. Then again, she is thankful to know the truth and the peace she has today. Do you have any advice on this matter? You know, this is a story that I've heard a lot of times, and there's a lot of households that are divided over this, okay? And my suggestion would be to live at peace as much as depends upon you. Don't, you know, paste preterism on the bottom of his beer mug so when he finishes the beer, he's got a preterist scripture there or something. Don't harp at him, don't nag him, don't bug him about it. If you can get into conversation, then lovingly just, I think the best thing to do is ask questions. Hey, what does this verse mean? What did he mean that some of you will still be alive when I return in this? How could he say that to his disciples? You know, ask questions that are non-offensive. You're not attacking, you're questioning. Get them to think. 
But if they don't want to discuss it, listen, don't try to pour water down a clogged sink. It doesn't go anywhere. You know, there's no point. If they're not open, I, that's the same with the gospel. When you're trying to share the gospel, you see somebody's resistant. What? Don't waste your time. The Lord didn't. You know, if they're not open to it, if they're open, you know, too often we get an opportunity and we dump the full mother load on them. You know, here's everything. You know, and they're like, whoa, their head's spinning. Give them, you can pay attention to the people. Be attentive. You know, you can tell when they're done. I'm not, I'm shut off. I'm not listening anymore. And then they'll be free to come back again because you didn't beat them up the first time. Just give them what they asked for and see how, how it goes. But I would just recommend that she love her husband, love her kids. This is the truth. You hold to the truth. No one can take that truth away from you. But, you know, work at being peace in that household, you know. And if, you know, some people, they do think it's heretical. You know, again, I know a husband who told his wife she had to quit reading her Bible. Because she believed in preterism. And he blamed it on me. You stop listening to Dave Curtis. She says, I'm not listening to Dave Curtis. I'm just reading my Bible. Stop reading your Bible. And she did that for two weeks. And then she said, this is nuts. And she went back to reading. But, you know, you can't do anything with those people. God has to open their eyes. So just pray. And take the opportunity, you know, be the best, lovingest, greatest wife in the world. And he just want to hear what you guys say. (laughs) You know? When we come against people in a hard way, it just it, it doesn't do much. It just you know builds resistance. So we got to try to. Uh, <laughs> who is this? Uh, Jill. Jill says I was so convicted by this message that it made me cry. I've been crying all week, Jill. Really, I've been crying all week. I repent of my ungodly behavior and ask the Holy Spirit to enable me to love the way I am called to. Thank you, David, for sharing another life-changing message. I'm so blessed by your continual sharing of truth. Thank you, Jill. I greatly appreciate that. Exodus 14, 14. Yahweh will fight for you. You only have to be silent. That's what it's all about. God says, I will repay. Don't we trust Him? Do you think you can do a better job repaying than He can? That's just foolish, you know? Let Him, let him do it. Let Him take care. Uh, Shelly says, thank you. Didn't mean to be a troublemaker. I was just teasing, Shelly. You're, you're fine. I, I, you know. I could just say that, uh, I, I want to say thanks to Shelly. She opened my eyes to this whole, I was never involved in politics until a couple of years ago when Shelly started asking me some questions I couldn't answer. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? And I started digging into it. And it's given me a real peace in the way things are going because I'm, I'm confident this thing's going to turn around and be great. I really am. So, you know, I know there's a lot of naysayers and people, everything's bad, everything's bad. That's because you don't know what's going on, because you don't pay attention. Shut off the news. If you're watching the news, you're just being fooled. They're planting garbage in your brain. They make up crap. Just shut off all of it. Shut it off. If you're watching it, you're going to have a wrong view. You've got to find some truthers you can follow who are on the ground reporting actual events. And if you're not seeing that, Hebrews 10.26, no longer any forgiveness. Can you address this verse? Yeah, it's not really in the context of what we're talking about here, but you know, the idea was they're turning away from Christianity. They're turning back to Judaism. And he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can't go back there and offer those sacrifices. They don't work anymore. 
Christ is the sacrifice. So if you turn from Christ, there's no forgiveness anywhere else. It's only in Christ. It's not in the judicial system. It's not in that, you know, Judaism. It just doesn't work. No, really. Okay, uh, thank you for what you all do. We love you as our church family. We can't wait to visit. Great message. Thank you. I just, you know, I so appreciate those of you watching. I appreciate your questions. You know, I'd like to try to make things as clear as I can. Today's message summation. This is from John. He says, God is taking out the nations. God is taking out of the nations a people called under his great, great name. You know, again, we're not going to win the world by being like the world. We're called to be different. And you know, I'll tell you one. Huh? No. One of the things that should be very convicting to, to all of us is the persecuted church that's read every Sunday morning. That's the purpose. That's why we do that. It should be a reset for you. You know, this is how Christians around the world live. They're suffering. When have we ever heard a story about them retaliating? You remember anything, Sharon? Stan, any about retaliation? Now, I've heard from some people that the younger people sometimes are retaliating. Okay? But for the most part, they just deal with it. This is our lot. And I mean, that's a powerful Powerful testimony. I knew this question was going to come up. What about self-defense in the home? Do we forgive someone who is breaking in to defend our family? This is a deep topic. It is a deep topic, and I'll give you my two cents on this. This is my personal opinion, okay? I have a two-story house. Plenty of guns in that house. If you come to that house and you break in and you want to steal stuff, you take everything you want downstairs. If you come upstairs, you're going out in a body bag. Okay, simple as that. Take my stuff. I don't care about my stuff. But my family's upstairs. And if you come upstairs, this is not retaliation. Now, if someone breaks in my house and hurts my family, and I don't do anything about it, and then next week I get a gun and go try to hunt them down, that's retaliation. One is self-defense. And I believe, biblically, we have a right to defend ourselves. Moreover, we have a right to defend the weak and the helpless. And when I see somebody bullying or coming down on someone who's helpless, I want to get involved. I want to stop it. And I wouldn't hesitate. Like I said, someone comes upstairs. First of all, tactically, if you're in a situation there's somebody in your house, don't move. That's the worst move you can make. Get your gun and sit down and wait. That way they don't hear anything. They don't know anything. When they come to you, goodbye. Okay? Central mass. Don't wound them. Central mass. Okay? That's self-defense. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I really don't. All right, there's Christians who argue that, oh, we have to just be... Uh, no, that's not me, okay? Retaliation is a whole different story. That's going after the fact to try to get even with someone who did you wrong. Protecting your family is a different story. And I think anybody that won't protect their family, there's something at issue there, okay? My two cents worth on self-defense, but I knew that question had to come up today because it's, you know... Forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. John F. Kennedy. (laughs) No, no, that's, again, that's the wisdom of the world. Because leave it to God. God's going to do a way better job of any of this than you are. He's going to, He will perform justice. He will take care of the situation. You just, you know, you got to know 
again, you got to be familiar with the scriptures and know what's happening. Okay, when Joseph went through the stuff he went through, okay, he said to his brothers, you meant evil against me. He could have retaliated big time. He was powerful. He could have done anything to them peons he wanted to do. Oh, you guys like to throw people in the pit? Put them each in the pit for a week, you know. He, he could have done anything he wanted. He said, you meant evil for me. Then he said, but God meant it for good. That's hard to deal with. But we have to understand, God is in control. He meant it for good. That's why we don't retaliate. He's in control. Shan says, thank you for this convicting message and reminder, David. I feel like I'm on both sides of this message. <laughs> Again, it's, it, you know, I was grieved this morning going over this in my office. I'm just like, Lord, I know this is true. I know this is how we are to live. It just seems so impossible at times. But it is unless you, again, unless you're abiding in Christ, unless you're under the control of the Spirit, you're never going to do this in the flesh. It just won't happen. But the problem is today, most Christians walk in the flesh and not in the Spirit. That's why things are such a mess in the church. It all goes back to the Scripture. The Scripture has to be taught. And when the Scripture is taught, it affects how people live. Uh, Bob, our blue-collar scholar. Exodus 22.2, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. That's right. Someone broke in your house? Now, the Scriptures are different during the day. You know, if he comes in during the day, I don't really understand that. If he comes in during the day, he's going to be just as dead as he will be at night. I'll just be able to see him better. <laughs> you know, but again, you, you have to... You have to decide for yourself, well, how do I respond? How do I protect? How do I... I don't... Very rarely do I leave the house without a gun. Why? Because I think this world is crazy and I'm going to defend myself. And I'm not going to stand by and watch somebody beat up my family. Why stand by and wish I could do something? Okay? I just, you know, I think it's about defense. And we're to the point now where criminals are running the streets, okay? You let them go. You got the no-cash bail in so many cities. They're arresting people for murder. The next day, they're on the street and committing another murder. Now, in my mind, the judges should be shot. Start at the top and work your way down, okay? But, I mean, it's just, again, the country is so messed up. If we don't fix this, it's going to be the wild, wild west around here. Gary? I don't have a second story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Gary's letting you all know if you come in the house, he doesn't have a second story. So I think to me that's the advantage of the second story. Like I said, I could sit there, let them do what they want to downstairs, unless they try to light it on fire. I guess that wouldn't be good. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, then I'll be jumping out into the pool. (laughs) Uh, Again, it's it's up to you. Have to make a decision for yourself and what you will do. I just. It's hard for me to understand people today that don't have a firearm. Because if you don't have a firearm, you are totally vulnerable. Whatever happens in your house, you're just going to sit by and watch. If you're on a subway and people come to start shooting everybody, if you're on a bus, if you're in a mall, you just stand by and watch people get shot and cower. If you shoot back, the bad guys don't like that. Okay? And just stay away from gun-free zones. That's where the bad people like to go. Okay? The only gun-free zone to me is the courthouse, and that's because they use metal detectors. <laughs> so you can't actually get in there with a gun. So that's, those signs don't really make much difference to me. 